you're listening to the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran and in 2011, Portugal Tuma and I started a 10 by 9 in the black box in Belfast and we're still there every month. If you've never been, well, why not? It's a live event where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life on a chosen theme. It's always free and we love it. There are three stories on this podcast for you, recorded on our first ever 10x9 in Limavati at the Roe Valley Arts Centre. It was a wet and windy Friday in February, but keeping us warm was the theme, love. First up is Paul Brady, but before we hear from Paul, I just need to provide a little glossary for some of you who are not familiar with the subtleties of life here in Northern Ireland. So, King Billy is a reference to King William IV, a long-dead English monarch who was actually Dutch and remains an icon for certain loyalist, i.e. Protestant groups. A Kick the Pope band is a marching band from the loyalist, i.e. Protestant tradition. The UDA is a paramilitary, i.e. murderous group from the loyalist, i.e. Protestant tradition. And yes, Catholics have their own version too. And the College of Biz is a reference to the College of Business Studies, which was an educational establishment in Belfast that taught vocational courses rather than academic. Now, if you've got all that, you can really appreciate this from Paul Brady. Oh, and there is one little F-bomb. On the 30th anniversary of our first date, the Duchess and I tried recreating it with limited success. Unsurprisingly, there had been a lot of changes in that time. Revisiting the first bar that we went to that night, we sat on chairs at a table like two old fogies. Instead of on the stairs, we're as young and cool people we used to sit. The modern Cubo Euro Afro fusion jazz music was garbage. And the strong smell of fish from the gentrified bistro wasn't helping the ambiance at all. The second bar we went to was still the same sad sausage fest that it always was, filled with American tourists pretending to like Guinness and whitey-faced office workers who had stayed far too long and said way too much to their new boss. We decided to give the recreating a miss. It's true, what to say, you can never go back. Apart from that, the next stage of this recreating was to go to Paddy's house and sit in his front room, drink until the early hours, and finally get an old snog on the way home. Paddy has teenage kids now, and they had school in the morning. And we now live in Lisburn, which is too far to walk from his house. And also, despite being married to her for the guts of 30 years, I'm obviously still quite the catch. So the snog was more or less guaranteed. We cut our losses and got one of the kids to come and pick us up and bring us home. After that original first date all those years ago, the Duchess and I didn't actually see each other again for about two weeks. Circumstances got in the way. I had accepted an invitation from a girl I had met on a training course to go and visit her in Coleraine. We had got on so well, so naturally, I thought, why not travel by train to a place I'd never been to stay with a girl who had known for six hours and her husband who had never met. <laughs> At the time, I would have told you that a stranger is just a friend you haven't met yet. My recent ADHD diagnosis would also tell you that I wasn't spontaneous at all, but actually just had very poor impulse control <laughs> and no sense of danger or self-preservation. My proud friend at work had laughed and said to me, in Korean, don't tell anyone where you're from or what foot you kick with 
and concentrate on trying to get your fiend and eyes to be a wee bit further apart. <laughs> <coughs> on reaching the house, the wee house in the town, I was welcomed warmly inside. I was introduced to the man of the house, who seemed like a nice enough fella. I wasn't really concentrating on what he was saying, because I couldn't take my eyes off the wall. Above the fireplace, nailed to the wall, was a tea towel. Just where a mirror or one of those terrible family portraits would be. On it was King Billy, astride his white horse. If it was an ironic statement on the temporary nature of political and religious ideologies, then it was lost its sting, as the other walls in the room had another King Billy, the Queen, and the Ulster says no on a Union Jack. <laughs> all in tea towel form, all nailed to the walls. Johnny plays in a band too, she said. Not like the one you sing in. He plays the flute in a kick a poop band. <laughs> I kind of spluttered and laughed at the same time. I'd never heard that phrase before. I'm going to be cooking here for half an hour at least, Johnny. Why don't you take Paul up to the club for a quick pint? I couldn't tell you where we went. Some shithole up an alleyway. With no natural daylight and really cheap drink. It smelled of stale smoke and regret. Or maybe that was just me. As Johnny sat making idle chit-chat, and I sat working out how to get out of a hat day in a hurry, the door opened, and a few large men walked in. On today's news reports, they would be called local community representatives. <laughs> in those days, they were known as local willy faces. Ah, look, they're back out, said Johnny fondly. He turned to me and half whispered, they've just finished two years for possession and membership. He stood up to say hello as the two handlebar mustachioed men passed by. All right, boys, good to see you out and about. This is Paul. He's visiting from Belfast. He's one or the other, but he's all right. <laughs> all right, Paul, said mustache number one, offering a hand. We'll maybe call down and see you at Johnny's house later. <laughs> they walked on. He looked back. Back at the house later, I sat wide awake in the quiet darkness. I'm back against the wall under the front window, which had no closable curtains or blinds. I held a poker, tight in both hands. <laughs> I'd arranged a few cushions under the quilt of my makeshift bed on the living room floor so that it looked like someone was sleeping there. I sat and waited. On muffled voices outside, on soft footsteps, on the click of a shotgun, on an attack that never came. By the light of the dying fire, both King Billy's and the Queen watched over me until dawn. <laughs> I scribbled a quick note to the couple, thanking them for their hospitality, but apologizing that I had to cut my visit short, having remembered some totally made-up thing that I had to go and do at home. I closed the door quietly behind me, then ran like Usain Bolt on performance enhancers to the station, where I got the first available train back to the big smoke. Only when the train had been in motion for a good 10 minutes and my heartbeat had slowed down to sub-techno levels did I relax enough to light up a fag and thank my lucky stars for this beautiful new day that I had lived to see. The sun seemed brighter and warmer, grass seemed greener, and the fag somehow seemed fagier. <laughs> I got off the train in Great Victoria Street and walked into town instead of off to the taxi rank for home. I was on autopilot. To this day, I have no idea why I went there. I just did. To my frazzled brain, wired on adrenaline and mortal fear, it seemed the obvious place to go. The Duchess worked on and off in her auntie's shop in the fountain centre. I called in. I thought she would get a laugh out of the story of my mad night in Coleraine. I liked her laugh. 
and had been meaning to get in touch anyway since her date a fortnight beforehand. She wasn't there. I was a little disappointed, which was weird, I thought. I headed up the road homewards and called to Paddy's house on my way. Paddy's house was where everybody went. An impromptu youth club and meeting place manned by Paddy and his elderly father Bobby, or as we called him, Mr O'Neill. You could smoke and drink there, as long as you didn't act the Egypt too much and you went home when Mr O'Neill finally came down the stairs in his pyjamas and said quietly and politely, have you boys no homes to go to? Meanwhile, the Duchess had woken up at home and decided that today was the day that she was getting her life back in order. She'd been skipping more and more classes at the College of Biz and spending more and more time at Paddy's house, hoping to run into that oldest Brady fella. They had been on a date a fortnight beforehand. It went really well, and he made her laugh, but she hadn't seen him since. His brother said that he was away at some work thing in Coleraine for a few days. She needed to stop mooning about and go get her classes like she'd promised she would. She called past the shop on her way through the town, and one of the girls said that a tall, good-looking fella <laughs> with really long hair <laughs> had called in and was asking for her. She put her College of Biz folder under the counter, where it remained untouched until the shop closed a few years later. She headed up the road to Paddy's house. I was sitting in the back room having a smoke and a cup of tea when I heard the back door opening and her voice saying hello to Paddy's dad. My pulse raised slightly. I fixed my hair quickly and prepared to look pleasantly surprised when she walked in. A bustling whirlwind of Robin Hood boots, hippie skirt and patchouli oil, it was the 80s, an explosion of red hair around rosy cheeks. Paddy's house was at the top of a steep hill. <coughs> were you down in the shop this morning, she asked. I thought you were away in cool rain all week. Jesus, don't remind me of saying. I've literally just stopped shitting myself this very second. <laughs> I've been holding off telling you the story of my lucky escape from certain death until I saw you. She sat down beside me and I took her tiny hand in mine. Thank God you're here, I said, with as much drama as I could muster. You were nearly a widow. <laughs> she rolled her brown eyes, threw her head back and laughed, and that was me hooked. By the way, I said, I think I'm in the fucking UDA now. Thanks so much for that, Mr. Brady. That was a grand tour of the North. Next up, it was her first time at the 10 by 9 mic. Here's Linda Faith Kelly. Two dozen pink carnations arrived at my house on Valentine's Day. It was the 70s. I was 18, and the only Valentine card I'd ever received was from one of those boys you really like, but only as a friend. I didn't realise that spending so much time in their company and laughing at their jokes could be misconstrued as flirting or so one of those boys who I'd thought were just friends told me. This was different. This sumptuous bouquet was not from a boy, but a man. Five years older than me, he had a job, a car, not one he'd borrowed from his mother. He rented a house with friends where he cooked for me. He took me out to a hotel for dinner and a bottle of sophisticated red wine. I hoped the neighbours could see the delivery van parked at our gate. This was a spark in my life's dreary normality while I waited for grown-up life to begin. Meanwhile, Valentine cards were a major event. At school, I played it cool. Did he send you a card? A friend asked. No, I said, then paused a beat. But I got two dozen carnations. The drama soon went round the class. Betsy propped her chin up in her hand, resting her elbow on the desk, casual, 
nose tilted upwards, eyeing me sideways. Michael gave me a single red rose on my birthday, but that didn't cut it today. Even my mother was impressed at first, but as the months went on, she became critical. I was spending too much time with him. I could do better. Where was he from anyway? What did his parents do? His jeans were too tight. I was embarrassed but laughed to myself when she and her sister staged a conversation about how love wouldn't keep you warm if you were young and hadn't the money to heat the house. Was this love? So I kept my distance from her critical eye and tongue, catching a bus to visit my boyfriend when she refused to lend me her car. He and I talked about a future together, but I didn't change my plans to go to university, even when he suggested one closer to home. I wanted to go far from everything I was used to. That end of school summer was full of anticipation for the life that lay ahead of us. We took every chance to go dancing in discos, hotels, pubs. There were parties with Matthias Rosé wine in the sand dunes. There was music, exuberance while we waited for exam results to sweep us into the next life phase. When I think of that summer, I see yellow, orange, red, but as the volume and brightness of our lives were turned up, my feelings for the lovely boyfriend changed. A friend found me close to tears in the ladies' toilets during a disco. I confessed my confusion. She persuaded me to join her and another friend on a European interrail trip. That will give you time to decide what to do. This was the trip that put me off travelling for some years and off camping for life. But there were boys, boys, boys. Even though I was also sending romantic postcards, sometimes with the words of Simon and Garfunkel songs on them to the uncertain boyfriend. When I came home after a month to his certain love for me and to A-level results which would take me away, there seemed no reason to spoil things. On results day, I ran into the kitchen, pleased with myself, amazed at one grade in particular. You see, I told you you could do something better, was my mother's reaction. No smiles, back turned. Was this love? The tail end of the summer dragged on until the day I left for university. Excited, I ran into the kitchen again to say goodbye to my mother. Again, her back was turned. No smile, no hug, no best wishes. Was she still in a huff with me? or so overwhelmed with emotion at my leaving that she didn't want me to see her eyes were wet. Was this love? Soon I was living in a city for the first time, drinking as much as I wanted without worrying about a riot at home. I tried smoking dope a few times, cooking little more than cheese on toast, filling up on chips, beans and pies in the student union. Before I left home, the boyfriend had said he would come and visit halfway through the term. I had agreed and kept my word. So here he was one weekend, fitting comfortably into my new life, sitting in the bars I liked, charming my friends. It was all very cosy, good to see a familiar face from home. But all through the cheer of that weekend, I knew there was something I had to do. I had to end it. The night before he left, that is what I did. I have something to tell you. I thought you might. I don't want to go out with you anymore. But what he had thought was that there had been someone else, that I'd had a fling with some other young student and I was making an honourable confession. I felt more guilt than if that had been at what happened. 
I had agonized over whether to stop him coming to visit, kidded myself that maybe all would be well when I saw him again. But the truth was a dead end. He was devastated. We both cried through the night until it was time for him to leave, for the train to the ferry which would take him back to his life, but not the one he'd planned. I can still see him as I did when I looked down from that third floor tenement window as he trudged along the grey Scottish street on a miserable November morning, rucksack on shoulders, hunched against the cold wind of young love when it turns its face against you. Thanks so much, Linda. Okay, if you like what we do and would like to help us keep on doing it, we have a Patreon account where you can make a monthly or a one-off donation which goes towards covering some of our overheads such as the website 10x9.com where you can find out all you ever wanted to know about 10x9. Also follow us on social media, i.e. Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Now to our third story of love and it's from Roy Arbuckle. Falling out of time is the only way I can think of to try and describe what happened to me and Martina Brady one night in October 1985. I'd come back to Ireland in springtime after living alone for several years in North America, and I had fully intended to return there in September. At the time, I was playing folk music in a duo called the Ramblin' Boys of Pleasure. We had worked our way across the States, gig by gig, from Oregon to New York. Then we flew to England, where we bought a second-hand blue transit van each and drove home via Wales and Rosslair. The plan was to play some gigs in Ireland and spend a lot of time on the beaches. 1985 was the wettest summer in years. <laughs> no beaches. We plotted around Ireland doing gigs from Clare to here to Mullinhead and back again. We were still doing that in October, which was fortunate for me, for it was then I met the amazing Martina Brady. I was heading for a gig in Maharafelt and had arranged to pick up James and Patricia Murphy from Murphy's Bar in Dungiven. I'd spent many happy hours there starting way back in 1973. So I walked in the door and Patricia introduced me to Martina. We shook hands, and time stood still. It seemed that everything in the room vanished, and we were alone in some altered state, falling out of time. It obviously just took seconds, but seemed like forever. Then the moment passed, and we came back to reality. Martina came with us to the gig, sitting in the back of the transit van with her friend, James, and Patricia's daughter, Miriam. At the end of the gig, we talked for a while, and I said, do you want to go out sometime? When? Martina can be very direct. <laughs> How about tonight? So we went back to Murphy's for late night tea and whiskey, and that was the start of what was to be the best period of my life. It took me a while to realize that, but we've been together more or less ever since through thick and thin. I think it might be love. Nah, I know it is. So anyway, we started going out and staying in. In my wee mind, I was set and going back to Canada and eventually Oregon. So I was still learning how to be alone after serious relationships ending in heartbreak. 
So I was really reluctant to get into another one. We agreed to enjoy each other's company and not get too serious. Little did I know. In those days, I was trying to learn to draw, and I asked Martina to pose for me. She agreed and suggested that she would do it without clothes, in the nude. Yes, every aspiring artist's dream. <laughs> now, I know very little about art. My inspiration came from Betty Edwards' book, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. But I knew that all the greats like Rubens and Renoir and that Picasso boy all painted beautiful naked women. So I was thrilled to get the chance to be part of that great tradition. None of the tools had a clue about how to go about this posing business, so we footed around the kitchen laughing and trying different places and poses. Eventually, she sat up on the worktop beside the sink. <laughs> There's natural side light from the window above, and yes, the lace curtains were pulled across, <laughs> ensuring our privacy. So there we were in our kitchen, me sketching away with a lump of charcoal, and going good when the back door opened, and then walked our mother. <laughs> yes, the matriarch, the wonderful Anna Brady. Consternation. This was the first time I had met the woman who was to become my mother-in-law. <laughs> Awkward is not the word. <laughs> Martina fled upstairs to get some clothes on, and Anna looked at the drawing. The nipple's not quite right. <laughs> the rest of the conversation has been erased from my memory. When Martina came back down, I whispered desperately in her ear, tell your mother it was your idea. And I think she did. We still have the unfinished drawing. It's hanging in the privacy of our bedroom now after spending years rolled up in a cardboard tube. It shows the signs of aging in a damp climate, much like myself. Thank you. Thanks so much for that, Roy. What a great introduction to the in-laws indeed. And from where I was sitting on the evening, I had a great view of Roy's son, Robert, and his face during that story was a picture. And that's it from this podcast. If you're interested, my Tamanine co-founder Podrig has his own podcast. It's called Poetry Unbound, and it's amazing and available from the usual podcast places. So thanks for listening, and a big thanks also to everyone who helped make our first trip to Limavati such a success. The wonderful people at the Roe Valley Arts Centre, including Esther, Daryl, and Maureen. Our wonderful audience, and all our storytellers. But the biggest thank you this week goes to Paul Brady, who survived to find love, Linda Faith Kelly, who knew when it was time to say goodbye to love, and Roy Arbuckle, a man who loves his art. I'll be back with another podcast soon, but for now, bye-bye.